to 1 John for the last time in this series. 1 John chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 18 through 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. At the end of this sermon, we are going to be baptizing William Ferguson. He's going to be confirming his faith in Jesus Christ. And thus he will be received into Christ's body on earth as a member here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship. And this feels so appropriate for this final sermon in 1 John because this book is the book of brotherly love in the life of the local church. And baptism is that official entrance into Jesus' body on earth. Not, Not necessarily in heaven, You better have entered that already by new birth. But on earth where the church says, yes, come on in, we see signs of new life in Jesus Christ in you. And so He will be at the end of this service testifying to this body and to the world, I, Billy Ferguson, Believe in Jesus Christ that He has grabbed hold of me, that He died for me, and He rose from the dead for my new life now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this glorious day of all of those of us who have had the privilege to know and to love Billy. Now help us here in preparation for that with this text, by helping me teach it. Be clear with it. Say what it says and not something else. And fall upon us, Father, by the Spirit. That the words of this passage will go deep into us the little children. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. This whole letter for the last eight months has been aimed at building assurance of salvation for genuine believers. And so keeping consistent, John ends the letter with three, you know, 
Listen to it. Verse 18, see it? We know. Verse 19, we know. In verse 20, and we know. That's what this is about. For those who have been grabbed a hold of by Jesus Christ, that they would know that truth and be secure in their salvation. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now we know, as we have covered, He doesn't mean they don't have sin natures and don't commit sin. He means they do not live in a pattern and lifestyle of unrepentant sinning. And more specifically from what we saw last week, those persons born of God will not commit the sin unto death. They're walking in the light. He says, we know everyone who has been born of God. That's their life. on a new track. Do you know it? But he says, but instead he who was born of God, he's referring to Jesus here, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him, cannot cause you to eternally perish. It won't happen. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Believer, do you know that? That you have been born of God. And thus, you live here in the world, but the whole world in which we now live lies in the power of the evil one. In verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So he, he ends this letter with these three we knows. Have assurance. Except for the very last line, verse 21, which is a strange command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he do that? I mean, it seems to just come out of the blue. Through this whole letter, he has never once mentioned the word idols. He's not once mentioned or used the word idolatry. And so of all things that he could have had his last few words in this letter, why does he leave us with the warning, keep yourselves from idols? That's the question on the table. To do that, I want us to turn back to the books of Moses, to the law, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Go to Exodus 20. Let's start there and see if we can get a feel for why John is doing this. Commandment number one, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, an idol. 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. There's the foundation of the command against idolatry. Against worshiping idols. Now, stay right there in Exodus. Because this command here against idol worship appears again, I'm going to argue, in the Tenth Commandment. Down at verse 17. Commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his Mercedes or anything that is your neighbor's. On and on. Now, why do I say that is essentially the second commandment connected to the first? Have no other gods before me. Do not make any substitutes, any idols. Because that's what the New Testament teaches all over the place. For instance, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, For you may be sure of this, church, that everyone who is, now here's this word, who is covetous. And then he says, that is idolatry. They're synonymous to him. Everyone who is covetous, that is idolatry, or is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so, idolatry, idol worship is valuing anything or any person more than the one true God. The first commandment, have no other gods before Me. An idol is anything or any person that takes center stage in our affections where only God belongs. And so, in writing to the Colossians, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, and then he can't help himself, which is idolatry. It's idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God and from the Gospel of Jesus Christ in our walk with Him, the contentment we should be finding to fit that hole, we substitute with other things, with covetousness, with these deep... Another way to say covetousness is deep longing or desire that, that says, if I can have that, I will be contented. That will satisfy me. An idol is a God 
substitute. It can be children or spouse or the desire of a spouse or work or job or money. We can take anything under creation and mold it into an idol. And John says, little children, keep yourselves from doing that. So let's just go further. So then why does John put that here as the last line in verse 21? It doesn't come out of the blue when you read the text closely. It actually follows after the verse right before it where there's this repetition of a word translated in the ESV as true. True. Alethanon. Not the same word as aletheia. Aleth, where, where aletheia or truth means, there's, that's a falsehood, that's not a false statement, here's a true statement. Aletheanon has to do with genuine as opposed to imitation. True! This is real! Here's the, here's the original painting. And here's all the copies of it. Not original. Listen to it in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is genuine. The real thing. Who is reality. No imitation. And we are in Him who is reality. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the real God. The true God. And eternal life. So, God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, John is saying, is the essence of ultimate reality. Of what is true, as opposed to replacements, idols, images. He's saying in Jesus' incarnation, becoming human, His life, His death, His resurrection from the dead, and then that message, that good news, goes to the world. And we come along and get born almost 2,000 years later, and somehow that news of what actually happened in history comes to us, and there's this other part now that happens. The miracle of new birth in hearing that message and the light went on and you say, I, don't, I see it. I heard it all my life until I was 19. And I thought I believed until I did believe and I realized I didn't. Because the light went on as I read the Bible one day and it struck me. I didn't know what happened Thank goodness we have a book and, and reading it for years. It's so clear He tells me what happened. The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He acted and shone in my heart. That's new birth. It brings us to see the treasure and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And as He puts it here in verse 20, he did all this. He brought this understanding so that we may 
know, not merely about Him, but know Him personally, who's genuine, who is true. So now get the flow. He's done this so that you will know Him. You, believer, you are in Him who is true. Keep yourselves from false gods. And that's the flow. Keep yourselves from idols. He's saying, is God real? Is the God of 1 John real? Or is He just an image like Aaron's calf? Here's your God, O Israel, that we manufactured. John doesn't mind posing the question. Are we playing games as Christians? His answer is, no. Jesus Christ, a very genuine human being who was eternally with the Father, is the evidence that God is real. Genuine. He is saying the realness of Jesus historically that, that John knew, talked to, ate with, and touched guarantees for us the realness of God. And that's why throughout this letter for the last eight months, John has been urging his readers to remain true to the real Jesus and not the false doctrine about Jesus that had cropped up. That's why eight months ago, John began the letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we, the apostles, have seen with our physical eyes and we looked upon and we have touched with our physical hands, Concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest. It appeared to us. And we have seen it. And have testified to it. And proclaim to you, as eyewitnesses, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us in Jesus. That which we have seen and heard with our ears, we proclaim to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So John argues, I'm sitting under oath in the courtroom of God, testifying as an eyewitness. I touched Him. I lived with Him. I talked with Him. I ate with Him for a couple years. And I watched Him die. And after His death, I am, I, John, am proclaiming He didn't stay dead. That body came out of the grave to a new immortal life. And I touched it. I heard Him speak through the sound waves hitting my ears, and I ate with Him. And He says now at the end of the letter, 
It tells us this is the one true, genuine God. And the way you know Him is by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so He follows it. Little children, guard yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. Taste what you really have. Don't settle for idols. Watch out for coveting or desiring anything in place of God at the core of your affections. In place of the only true, real, genuine God who is the source of all true, genuine, and ultimately eternal contentment. Paul gets at this right at the heart of it in 1 Timothy 6. So turn over there for a moment. Paul writes to Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 6. But godliness, Timothy, and he wants Pastor Timothy to teach the people this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now he argues for it. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For Timothy, I tell you, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, coveting, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is Paul's way of saying, guard yourselves from idols. He's trying to persuade us to not be covetous. You see, the key word is verse 6. Pursuing godliness with, here it is, contentment. See, covetousness is desiring anything other than God in such a way that it causes us to lose contentment and satisfaction in God who is saving us by the blood of His Son. That's why Paul calls it idolatry. So in verses 6 and 10, with that warning, he gives the reasons why don't be covetous. 
And then notice in verse 11, he says, Now, flee! Run away from. As if in terror. Flee these things. John says the same thing. Just uses different words. Keep yourselves away from idols. Let's read verses 11 and 12 there. 1 Timothy 6. But as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, not into a nothingness, towards something. Watch him. Flee away from these things and pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Okay, now here comes his next command. Fight, Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of faith. In other words, Timothy, guard yourselves and yourself from idolatry. To fight covetousness that is wants to just rise up within us all the time, is it the essence of what it means to fight the fight of faith. To fight the fight of trusting God in His Word and His promises to us. Because at the core, our covetousness, idolatry at its core, is unbelief. I yearn for this. If I only had this, God speaks clearly in the Scripture. Don't do that. No, I'm happier doing this. That is to say, just be clear, I don't trust you to have my best at heart. Therefore, I will Disobey. That's at the core of our idolatry, our covetousness. Remember, Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So, Jesus says, What it means to believe in Jesus is to have a taste of this experience of being satisfied. You know what it is to be really thirsty. You know, the older I get, the more thirsty I get while I sleep. There's water at the side. I'm thirsty. Or you ran a long way and your mouth is dry. He says, it's the experience of your soul, of your Affections, of your drive for happiness, to, to drink of communion with Jesus is all oh, that is good. It, it is to have Jesus as the satisfaction of our hearts, hunger. That's what it is to be believing in Jesus.
John says it in a negative. Keep yourselves away from not being contented in Jesus. Keep yourselves away from replacements, from idols. Verse 21 is the negative way of what he just said in verse 20 positively. Believer, you know Him who's true. You are mysteriously, really, spiritually in Him who is genuine. Keep it away, away from idols. See, remember, at least ten times in this short little letter, John has talked that way. Abide in Him. Remain in Him. Love Him who is true. To say it the negative way, keep yourselves from idols. So this is actually the perfect way for John to end this short epistle. Because the main thrust of this whole epistle has been the assurance of salvation. The assurance of eternal life conditioned upon obedience to God which flows out of and is the evidence of saving faith in God. Trust in God. Love for God. Remember chapter 5, verses 2-3. to John wrote, back to 1 John, By this we know, that we love the children of God. How, John? When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is what it means to love God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. That's stunning. He says God's commands to those who are born of God are not burdensome to obey if you love Him. Now that wanes for every believer, doesn't it? I think, if, if John were standing here, I think he would say, yes, I think you got it. At those moments when every genuine, born-again person is filled with His promises, the truth of God's Word, and in prayer, and just loving Him, and in communion, and at those moments, His commandments are no burden to them. Their faith and trust in God who spoke do this, do that, and don't do that, and don't do that, is high at those moments. The more our flesh, sinful nature, 
gains the ascendancy at those moments where covetousness, I just so be so much more happy if it's go this way. The more His commandments feel like a burden. But John is just saying, keep pursuing this. As you pursue this, you will be experiencing His commands are not a burden to you at all. They're your joy. Especially as you put your trust in that foundational promise. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so, here's my summary after eight months. My wife said, you're going to give a summary, aren't you? Okay. Alright, so here it is in 40 seconds. The summary of this letter, and I'm going to do it one way and I'm going to go backwards logically the other way. He is saying, Believer, I want you not just to be saved. I want you to have an assurance. I want you to have a confidence that you have eternal life. That's at the top step. That's what He wants. But there's something underneath that that, 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 that supports that. And He says, the way biblically you have a biblical assurance is by the way you are living in obedience to God's commands. It's underneath that. That's not the foundation in John's letter either. He says the way that obedience is happening in your life is because something is in your heart towards God called, I love Him. He's my life. Jesus, it's true, you are water to me. That is a going to Him, not giving to Him. You don't provide water anything. Water provides what we need. So underneath it, this is what it means for you to go to God, is water that you, you love Him. Obedience flows out of that. But that love for Him is not... The foundation under that in John's letter throughout is God acted. You have been born of God. So flip it around. You heard the Gospel and something happened to you. I said it that way on purpose. The light went on and you, that was it, it was over. You're just caught with Him. With His goodness, with His beauty, with, with the truth of who He's promised to be for you. You say, that is the answer to everything and why I exist. That's the foundation. And that's why you love Him. And your love for Him is what produces repentance ongoingly in your life and obedience to His commandments which gives you strong assurance that yes, I possess eternal life. See, that's what he's been saying when he wrote earlier, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Or, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? 
John? Because we love other Christians. Or, by this we know that we love other Christians when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and that His commandments to us are not burdensome. Love, John says. Love God. Keep loving Him. Trust Him. And out of that flows your walk. Or, let me say it negatively, keep yourselves away from substitutes, from idols. God is your contentment, your joy, your satisfaction, your hope, your longing, not merely in this life, but for eternity where your heart is anchored in His promises. Don't replace that with anything else. That life, for John now, is the battle of what he says in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world that we have been called out of, that we still live in, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Absolutely. We are only in darkness before we come to saving faith in Jesus. Then when we come to the light by His miracle, darkness surrounds us and it's still attached to our flesh. We all have a bent to worship Idols. The TV set, commercials, billboards, the internet, everywhere there are commercials beckoning, worship this. If you only had this, then you would be happy. And the battle of the Christian life is learning the secret of being content in God. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4 for a moment. Listen to how Paul lays it out about his own life. And he's not just writing or just saying. He's doing it as a model and an instruction to the church. Chapter 4, let's pick up with verse 11. Paul writes, Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul knows what it is to have needs. I've got to eat food. We, ministry costs money. That's what he's referring to. The Philippians raised a bunch of money for him while he's doing ministry and house arrest in Rome. But he gets down. He says, no, 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 no. That's not the God though. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I, Paul, have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be smashed, brought low, 
experience very unwelcoming circumstances. And I know, probably the more difficult one to know, and I know how to abound. Everything's going good. Ministry seems to be flowing, Paul says. I haven't seen any Judaizers follow me around for a while. Financially, we're being supported. Things are going smooth. Paul says, there's something to learn here. I have learned how to abound and not make it an idol. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Where's your secret, Paul? One of the favorite verses for many of us Christians in the Bible. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can obey the command to keep myself from idols when everything is plenty or everything is scarce because it's in Him who is true. Or you remember in the parable of the soils that Jesus told and He said one of the soils seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and then choked the plant, the seed. And Jesus made it clear. The seed is the Word of God. It's the Scripture. It's the truth of God. It's the Gospel. And He says, the thorns that grew up and choked the Word, Jesus let us know very clearly what they were. The worries of the world. The deceitfulness of riches. The desires for other things. Idols. At the core of covetousness is the desire for other things in competition with the Word of God. Trying to get you not to pay attention to it, love it, be changed by it, live by it, believe it, and trust it. Jesus warned. You live in a world and there are thorns everywhere. As John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Trying to put all of your desires in competition with the truth of God's Word. We are in a constant battle. This is the nature of what it is to be a Christian. A constant battle with idols beckoning for us over against the Word of God. Changing us, feeding us, and bringing us intimate, relational contentment with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Let me give you one example. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. 
chapter 13 and verse 5. This is how this dynamic works in our lives all the time. Here comes the commandment of God. Keep your life free from the love of money. Okay, stop for a second. You can insert anything that wants to replace God right there. You can insert it with all of the clear sinful activity that's listed in Scripture. Keep yourself free from sexual immorality. Keep yourself free from living in the flesh of just uncontrolled sinful anger or backbiting or jealousy or envy. Just fill it in, okay? But let's okay, let's go with him now. Here's the command. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. But if we stopped right there, we would miss what the Christian life is. He doesn't stop there. And the pattern throughout the Bible doesn't stop there. Here's a command. No. But it gives a reason. It's rooted in God's promise that you can trust Him. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, that's what it means, the four there, because He has said, and He goes to the Scripture. Joe, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, there it is. I got a choice. Love for money, whatever forms it's coming, how it's driving me away from Jesus. Now, I just got to make more money. I got to set for the future. I know that I haven't been in church for years, but I, gotta, I just have to do this or, or whatever. It's just driving me away. And God says, don't love money. I, here's the reason, trust me, will take care of you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As I continue loving money, I am saying, as much as I profess Jesus, and true Christians do this, don't get me wrong, but I am saying at that moment, I don't trust you. That's why the Christian life is a battle of faith. Not merely faith in the historical Jesus. We're talking about do I trust God now in what He has written. That's the daily life. That's the battle of verse 19. We know that we are from God. Now, I mean, he didn't say this, but the future, oh, it's unimaginable. The resurrection, no more sin. It's hard to compute for me. I only know what it is to be a sinner. But we live down here between the times and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and the battle is on. And so John ends it with, keep yourselves from idols. So, is there any hope to fight this way, to, to live this way for believers? Well, here's the question. Depends. Have you been 
born again? Have you been born of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ? If you have, then you can't fail. You will win. Your faith in trusting in God will persevere to the end. In the context of 1 John 5, you will not apostatize, commit the sin unto death. He will see to it. The reason you won't is because Jesus will make sure of it. Only those who are one with, by new birth, the one true God, those are the ones who are freed from the power of the evil one. There's an evil one. He's real. Satan is real. And that's why verse 18 says, Jesus protects everyone who belongs to Him. He protects you from living in persistent, unrepentant disobedience. Let me read verse 18 and hear it. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but He, and I agree with most scholars here that think this refers to Jesus, but He who was born of God protects Him. And the evil one does not touch Him. Satan cannot inflict ultimate harm on those who have been born of God. And so let me say to you who know you, trust Him. Dear believer, you're going to make it. You're going to make it because Jesus is going to make sure you make it. You're going to continue trusting in His promises. You are going unto death continue to flee from covetousness. You're going to continue to flee from that which is rising up within you, the lust of the flesh. You will persevere in running from disobedience to God's commands. You will persevere and continue to run away from the disobedience of not trusting in His promises. You will be vigilant to keep yourselves from idols because Jesus will make sure of it. You see, for every believer, none of us persevere through the strength of our own autonomous will power. Every born again person is vulnerable to sin within us 
and throughout all the world beckoning to us. Every single one of us has have such a strong inclination to sin, to worship idols, that without the aid of God's preserving power within us, we, every last one, would fall away from Jesus. But God's purpose to save through Jesus Christ, He didn't just purchase the forgiveness of sins to wipe it away, to bring us into communion. He purchased our coming and He purchased our perseverance. Trust Jesus' Word when He said in John 10, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's why all believers can obey. Keep yourselves from idols. And so I close the preaching through this book with John saying, keep yourselves from idols, but in different words, the way he said it in chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Beloved, keep yourselves away for miles. And now, Billy, what we are doing this morning is we as Sovereign Grace Fellowship is one of the thousands upon thousands of local fellowships on this planet. We are saying this morning, yes! You show the signs of faith in Jesus. That the way John says that you have been born of God. The way he said it earlier that those who are born of God, they listen to us apostles. That you pay attention. You listen to the words of the apostles. 
that you are one who's walking in the light and fleeing for miles. So, I want you to stand up. I want you to come over here and Uncle Serge, get over here. Sit right down in the front row for a moment. I have no idea what you're saying to me. No, you don't. You just come right up and you get those clothes wet. That's what we do. Okay. If it's good enough for John the Baptist, good enough for us, bro. All right. Absolutely. No robes here, man. Alright. So, a few words. The New Testament clearly teaches that a person is saved by faith. Alone. This miraculous happening where the heart came alive to God in the Gospel and says, I see it, I believe that. Water baptism, that physical thing here of water, is this outward proclamation and expression. Let me just stop for a minute. Like bread and wine are the constant ongoing ordinance in the church. Jesus isn't dying right here. He died then. And we're pointing through physical elements as as believers ingesting His blood and His body on an ongoing basis. And then there's the one-time ordinance of the entrance into Christ's body on earth where the water is representing, yes, His death is my death. And I'm rising from the dead. So that's the first thing that you will see this morning is Billy goes under the water. Because baptism represents that Jesus died Billy's death. I get that from Romans 6, starting with verse 3 where Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. That's what it means to be a Christian. When Christ died 2,000 years ago, we are saying, Billy died with Him. For all of us who are believers, we this is what the New Testament teaches. Our old, unbelieving, idol-worshiping life died. And we're alive spiritually now. We'll get there in a second. But we're not just saying that old way of unbelief has died, but our future physical death now will not have the same meaning for us that it would have had if we did not die with Christ when He died. If we would die physically in this world without having been united with Jesus' death represented by baptism, then our physical death would have meant the entrance into a horrific, eternal just 
condemnation. The second thing baptism means is newness of life. Paul writes, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also might live in newness of life. So nobody stays under the water. We bring them back up out of the water representing spiritual resurrection and future physical resurrection. As the Apostle Paul proclaimed in Galatians 2.20, I, Paul, have been crucified. In other words, killed with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the body down here. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And so the newness of life is the life of faith in Christ as Billy comes up out of that water. And so, we will be in a few minutes portraying Billy's death with Jesus. It's a glorious thing. And Billy's rising from the dead to a living faith in Christ and the Gospel of Jesus. Jesus' death became Billy's death. Signified by going under the water and His resurrection became Billy's new life now and in the future forever by Jesus rising from the dead. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means as we come out of the water for the next two years or 40 or 80, we are those who are going to live in the light of what baptism portrays. Now, there's a reason why I called Serge up here, who's really standing in here for his wife Trish also and his three kids because of the immense blessing that he has been and the family has been in your life and particularly because of the life of Christ in that family and how God has used them so much. So He will be with me baptizing Billy. And so, as we prepare to enter the water now over the next few minutes, let's stand up and worship the Lord.